and we are continuing on in our summer sermon series called Public Faith, Sharing the Hope That Is Within. It's based on work that was done by Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in the year of our Lord, 2013. And so this notion of uh, public faith can sort of in, in principle be a challenging one because in the 21st century, there's this deep perceived tension between private belief and public truth. It fits within kind of a broader uh, conceptual scheme like one that was developed by the late Harvard evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould who described the relationship between religion and science, but I think it, 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 it fits a broader context than that. Uh, he, he developed an acronym called Non-Overlapping Magisteria or NOMA. And he said that science, it's, that's, its magisteria is facts. So it speaks to the realm of facts and religion speaks to the realm of Values, And so if you're thinking of a Venn diagram, you have two circles, facts over here, values over here, and never the twain shall meet. No more. But here's the rub, because we know that, that the world is not so simple and life is a lot more interesting and complicated than that. And when it comes to things like formulating public policy, we, we know that... that those are expressions of values. And facts can't solve these questions on their own. You know, take, uh, for instance, one a public policy question that's, that's very pressing right now. You know, how many legal immigrants should we allow into our country each year? That's a question. It's just, what is the number? What should that number be? And it's a straightforward question, but it touches on a whole host of value questions. Right? What does it mean to be an American? What are our responsibilities to the rest of the world? What criterion should we use for deciding who to admit and where they should come from and, and how many from what place? Facts are certainly a part of this conversation, but once we have the relevant facts, it's ultimately a question of values. And when we think about public faith, it's often on these questions of values that, that Christians feel maybe most empowered to speak and feel that they have most to contribute to the conversation of what might constitute the public good. But a bad version of public faith is just varying tribes shouting back and forth, you know, one saying, okay, I'm right and you're wrong, and the other side goes, no, 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 no. I don't think you understand. I'm right and you're wrong. And it's sort of like ping pong or tennis. You know, you just go back and forth, back and forth, ad infinitum. But the more interesting question is if we get stuck, we get stuck at this impasse, okay? I think I'm right, obviously. I think you're wrong, obviously, and you think the exact opposite is to ask a deeper question, a question that gets beneath the assertions, and that's a question of, of where does your understanding of good and bad, good and evil, right and wrong, justice and injustice, where does that come from? That's a much more interesting and I think a much more fruitful and productive question for us to ask. What, what, what's the source of those belief? And when we ask better questions, we tend, surprised to get better answers. And we can have a clear understanding of, of the other person, and we can have a clear understanding of the stakes, too. And in asking these deeper questions, particularly about, about morals and, and values and, and, and how we bear those in public, we have no better guide than Paul in chapter 2 of his letter to the Romans. When we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. One, that we're all moral creatures. Whether we like it or not, 
It was baked into the cake. And number two, we're all moral failures, whether we like it or not. And third, that there's a, a solution to this tension between our moral intuitions and our moral failings that only God can provide. All right, so let's go. We're all moral creatures. So Paul's point that he's working up to at this point in, in, in the letters is that all humanity, Jew and non-Jew alike, stand under God's righteous condemnation. He's going to build to that point at the end of Romans chapter 3. God is going to judge everyone according to his or her works, and God will be a fair judge. God is not going to you know, tip the scale in favor of anyone. God will judge without partiality. And so Paul lays his basic thesis out in, in verse 12 uh, that Aaron read where it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And when just So we're all on the same page. When Paul is using this word law, he's talking about the Jewish Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And so a Jewish person would have heard the second half of verse 12. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law as completely uncontroversial, right? It's like saying, well, if you you do the crime, you're going to do the time. But the non-Jewish person could claim some grounds to object to what Paul is saying. If God is going to judge all humanity on the basis of the Jewish law, what about non-Jews? The vast, 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 vast majority of, of people living in the Roman Empire at that time, not to mention the known inhabited world. Isn't that unfair to judge someone according to a law that they did not know? It reminds me of an old episode of Seinfeld where George uh, is in an inappropriate relationship with a cleaning lady in his office. And so he gets caught. He gets found out. And he's brought before his boss. He's brought into the office. And so George, his strategy is to plead ignorance. And so when confronted by his boss with what he's done, he says, Was that wrong? Should I not have done that? At the last judgment, can we, like George Costanza, stand before God and say, Was that wrong? Should I not have done that? Paul's answer is that no one will be able to plead ignorance of the law before God because all of us are inherently, inescapably moral beings. As human beings, we can't help ourselves from constantly making judgments about right and wrong, good and evil, just and unjust. And so Paul says that though the Gentiles might not have the law, they might not have the Torah in its written and its revealed form, in some strange way it is already inscribed on their hearts. We all have consciences after all, that little voice inside of our head telling us do this or don't do that, that's right, that's wrong. And when we think of, okay, we think of the whole Jewish law, the whole Jewish Torah, thankfully God gave us a summary of it in in the Ten Commandments. And if we just think of the top hits, you know, from the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, uh, 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 honor your parents, don't profane what's holy and sacred, right? Those are essentially near universal, if not universal, moral norms that cut across different eras and different cultures. And so Paul's point is that God is going to judge everyone fairly and impartially, and, and no one will be without excuse when it comes to the law. Each and every one of us has a a fundamental understanding of the difference between right and wrong that has some way been written into the creation in itself, and it is upon that standard that we will be judged and we will be found wanting. 
All of us, all of us, all of us are moralists, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so the key question is, where does that moral intuition, where does that moral sensitivity come from? The materialist who says, you know, we're just particles, particles, nothing but the particles, would say that our our morals are strictly the result of the blind process of random mutation and natural selection. And so things like not murdering and kindness and altruism and generosity and even self-sacrifice somewhere back in the mists of time, afforded our ancestors with a survival advantage. Morals are those feelings we've developed because they have been advantageous to the survival of our species. But then the question goes further is, how can that kind of morality be be binding or be normative in any continuing way? Because we also know that part of our evolutionary heritage is fear of the outsider and the stranger, right? Someone from outside of your your group comes in, who knows what kind of disease or or terrible thing that they're bringing with them. And and, and so part of our ingrained morality, one might say, is a hostility towards such outgroup people. And so prejudice and bigotry, all of those things have a strong naturalistic support. Those people, you know, they're a social contagion. And so if we get rid of them, our society will be much healthier. And if that's what's helped our species survive and thrive to this point, who are we to argue with nature? But of course, at such a notion, our consciences rightly revolt. You know, why is it that we think that the the weak deserve protection from the strong? Why is it that we prefer truth to lies? Why, Why is it that we believe that when a wrong has been committed, that it ought to be punished and restoration, if it's possible, ought to be made? There's something supernatural, something beyond nature in our moral sensitivity that says that they're more than just private feelings, but they're public truth. Right? Genocide is evil. That's not just a feeling, it's a fact. Justice is real, even if it eludes us. When you get children together playing in a group, it doesn't take too long before one of them says, that's not fair. That's not fair. And as the Anglican New Testament scholar and bishop says, N.T. Wright says, and he's agreeing with Paul here, he says, our sense of justice and our desire to see it enacted, it's not mere child's play. It's an echo of God's voice a voice that echoes through creation and in our consciences that despite relativistic sophistry to the contrary, there is a real difference between right and wrong and good and evil. And that real difference, that dividing line, it's not between us and them, but it runs down the middle of each and every human heart. And that really segues me from the first point I want to make to the second point. And so the first is that we're all moralists, whether we like it or not. All of us hold to a standard of right and wrong, and were we created to do that? The only question is, where did that come from? And what do we do about it? But the second point is this. So we can't escape this, this, this thirst, this desire for morality. But the second point is this. We're all moral failures, whether we like it or not. And so in verses 17 to 24, Paul, he vigorously, directly attacks those moralizers who think that because they have the law, he says, you so-called Jews, 
because you claim the law, because you claim to know the difference between right and wrong, then you have this sort of smug sense of moral superiority, and you're in a better place than those who don't. And so this is Paul's head-on condemnation of religious pride and hypocrisy. And, you know, if you've spent enough time in the church, you have run across a person or two like this. People who are so proud that they are right, that they become self-righteous. But it's not just in the church. We spend a lot, maybe probably an inordinate amount of time, differentiating ourselves from other people, how we are better than other people across a whole spectrum of things, right? Well, I'm more educated than that person. I'm more cosmopolitan. I'm more enlightened. I'm more urbane. I have better taste. I'm more stylish. I'm more accurant. I'm more pragmatic. I have more common sense. The list goes on and on and on. We're constantly evaluating, ranking, and comparing ourselves. And surprise, we usually come on top of our own standards that we provide. And we need only watch, and one need only watch an award show to be reminded that self-righteousness and a smug sense of moral superiority aren't the exclusive territory of religious folks. After all, it was Harvey Weinstein who said, Hollywood has the best moral compass because it has compassion. Oh, Harvey. Oh, Harvey. But when it comes to having the best moral compass, we, 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 all, we all claim that we have it right there in our hand. And Paul wouldn't argue. He would agree with, with, with this so-called Jewish person. He would say, you do have the best moral compass. You have the law, after all, which he calls the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And the problem isn't with the law itself or with morality, it's with legalism and moralizing because eventually our hypocrisy will be exposed. And when that happens, instead of bringing people closer to God, which was the mission of God through his people, it pushes them further and further away. As Paul says in verse 24, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Basically, your religious hypocrisy is driving people away from God. And he's right. That continues to be the most discrediting thing in the world to the gospel, even more than intellectual objections like, uh, how do I reconcile you know, belief in God and, and, and in science? Much more, I think, gut level than that is the objections that people have to the rottenness that they see in the church. It was all over the news this week, the unfolding story of, of Uncle Teddy, Theodore McCarrick, the now ex-cardinal and ex-archbishop of Washington, D.C., who had a reputation as a, as a pederast and serial, serial abuser of young boys and seminarians, yet his colleagues remained silent and turned a blind eye as he continued to rise the, up the career ladder. And he even, in, in the most ultimate twisted way, became the voice of compassion and reform following the clergy sexual abuse scandal of the early 2000s. And so the bishops who were supposed to shepherd their flock aided and abetted the rise of a wolf. And we can understand why people get pushed away. And that's big scale, obvious hypocrisy. But then there's the smaller stuff. Like what I found in a wonderful article in the Washington Post this past week. It was about a small town, Southern Baptist Church in Alabama. And it was just examining how those folks uh, understood their relationship between their Christian faith and, and their overwhelming support of the president. And it's an excellent article. And uh, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. What struck me most about this article was not that conservative people would vote for the head of the 
you know, the person on the presidential ticket of the conservative party. That's incredibly easy to understand why when you're faced with a choice, you pull the lever for one over the other. And so it's not that you would vote for someone who represents your preferred policy initiatives that is striking. What's striking were the particular words from one conversation that I found. It was a conversation between two church members, Sheila and Linda. And again, it's not that they supported the president in the last election. It's what they said in this conversation that that struck me. From These are women who have spent decades in the church, studying the Bible, reading, praying, and this was striking. So they're talking, they're talking about sort of the, the overall political situation, how they understand what's been happening. And, and so uh, Sheila begins by saying, they're getting their nails done. And so Sheila says, you know, Obama was acting at the behest of the Islamic nation. She was referring to the allegations that, of course, uh, our former president was a Muslim, not a Christian. He carried a Koran, and it was not for literary purposes. And if you look at it, the number of Christians is decreasing, and the number of Muslims has grown. We allowed them to come in. Obama woke a sleeping nation, said Linda. He woke a sleeping Christian nation, Sheila corrected. Linda nodded. And it wasn't just the Muslims that posed a threat, she said, but all kinds of immigrants coming into the country, unpapered people, Sheila said, adding that she had seen them in the county emergency room and they got treated before her. And then the Americans are not served. Love thy neighbor, she said, meant love thy American neighbor. Welcome the stranger, she said, meant the legal immigrant stranger. The Bible says, if you do this to the least of these, you do it to me, Sheila said, quoting Jesus. But the least of these are Americans, not the ones crossing the border. To her, this was a moral threat far greater than any character flaw the president might have. As what she called the racial divide, which she believed was getting worse, the evidence was all the black people protesting about the police, all the talk about the legacy of slavery, which Sheila never believed was as bad people says it was, said it was. Slaves were valued, she said. They got housing. They got fed. They got medical care. I am speechless. But I'm also Sheila. Right? I'm a religious person. I'm a pastor after all. But I too am a moral failure. And I am a failed moralizer. It's just that I haven't exposed that to a reporter from the Washington Post. But God help me if I started revealing all of the moral judgments I have made upon people and the hypocrisy I have demonstrated. But God knows, God sees, and there's nothing that I can say to justify myself. So if we can't escape the reality of morality, nor can we escape the reality of our moral failings, what are we to do? It seems like we are caught in this inescapable dilemma. We know what we ought to do, but we do the opposite anyways. And sometimes we even do it because it is the opposite thing. And our actions, they don't just you know, hurt ourselves, but, but, but they can push people away from Jesus. And we can't hope to justify ourselves. We can't hope to fully fix what's been broken. And so what are we to do if justice, if the good, if what is right is to be more than an illusion? What hope do we have to offer the world beyond just hypocrisy? And to answer that, we turn to verses 25 to 29, where Paul writes about circumcision versus uncircumcision. And his basic point is this. What matters most isn't what is on the outside, what's going on out there, 
but it's on the inside, what God is doing and will do in your heart to change you from the inside out. And so what we need isn't some, you know, let's find the perfect outward signifier to show the world how moral we are. There's nothing that we can change our profile picture to our Twitter avatar to to signal to the world how virtuous we are. That's not what matters. What matters, Paul says at the end, is God transforming our inner reality by the work of his spirit. Because what we need are new hearts. Hearts that not just know God's desires for us, but, 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 but have the capacity to follow through. Hearts that can be moral without being moralizing. Hearts where we can live righteously without being self-righteous. Hearts where we can share hope and not just demonstrate hypocrisy. And so to get these new hearts, we need, and I'm sorry, but this is a real Sunday school answer. We need Jesus. We need his spirit to live in us, to properly orient the moral compass of our hearts. We need his spirit to write a new law, the law of love on our hearts. And we need him as our example of the one person who perfectly obeyed the law and wasn't a legalist who was perfectly righteous without being self-righteous. And be reminded that he did all that and he was crucified for it. We can't escape the law, we can't keep the law, but we can throw ourselves upon the grace of the one in whom we are promised there is no condemnation because he is the end of the law. He is the one where truth and love, justice and mercy meet in perfect balance. And that's the hope that we have to share with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.